The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Then Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were selling and buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he cured them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the amazing things that he did and heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became angry and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Second Council of Nicaea, the Seventh Ecumenical Council, which met in 787, is most remembered in that it established the theology of icons and their veneration. After centuries of iconoclastic furor and destruction by political and church leaders, the church finally spoke definitively on the question of icons and holy objects. The motivation for the destruction or banning of icons was based on a reading of the second commandment prohibiting graven images. The conviction of the iconoclast was that the image itself evoked the adoration which belongs to the divine alone. Therefore, any image, any icon, was by definition a graven image and in violation of the commandment. The council approved and protected icons by making an important theological distinction. The council said that the icon in itself was not a graven image because It was not made to be worshipped, nor was the worship of the image supported by the church. An icon was not a golden calf level of idol, as if it was claiming to depict or contain the divine, or to be worshipped as divine. What the council asserted was that an image properly understood was like a door or window through which the person praying before the image perceives and adores the heavenly personage who is depicted in it. Any sound theology of icons will be quick to repeat this point, that an icon is an image that is looked through, not looked upon. It points to something beyond itself. The icon presents us with the paradox that in the existence of the icon is the truth that the icon itself is not the object, but is meant to point to its subject. As physical sensory creatures, we need the image to point beyond the image, 
We're dependent on, on some means, some mechanism as an intermediate link between our finitude and the infinite. We need the icon to remind us that the icon is not the point. Further still, the veneration of icons is partly about the person seen or depicted in the icon, but more fundamentally about the act of seeing itself. When the icon teaches us how to see, we have changed our relationship to it from taking meaning from it to receiving insight by it. Icons and objects are like templates that reveal how I am in the world, how I relate to my humanness and God's self-revelation. This distinction between veneration and adoration, between seeing into and through the object and the idolatry of worshiping the object, is profoundly helpful in our practice of inhabiting this or any house of prayer, place of worship. Indeed, we cannot find what the collect bids us find, authentic peace and joy, without holding this this tension and being aware of the need for this distinction. Each of the readings for today is about the nature of God's communion with the material world and the means of our perception of that communion. In the first reading, recounting the dedication of the temple by Solomon, this ambivalence toward the notion of a holy place, a house for God, is named as a question that sits alongside the building. After all the effort of raising this colossal structure, Solomon asks, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Even heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house that I have built. Maybe he should have thought about that before the construction began. (laughs) And at the same time, we can identify with the need for a material place and focus for worship that is set apart. It will be over the next thousand years while the temple is standing as prophets arise to interpret it, that paradox of sacred space, as both gift and danger, which will become the central question in Israel's life of worship. The biblical epic preserves both the priestly tradition and the prophetic countervoice. The priestly narrative is concerned with right ritual piety, sacrifices and Sabbath, festivals and fasts that preserve the memory of the Exodus, the giving of the law, and the retelling and reenacting of these events of God's salvation. The Holy of Holies, where resides in the center of the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, is regarded and spoken about as the tangible presence of God on earth. The prophets, meanwhile, as countervoice, function as a social conscience toward how the ritual is viewed and lived. They warn about the dangers of temple worship that degenerates into mere outer form and neglects an equal passion for justice and righteousness. The goal for scripture is ritual and remembrance that informs 
and is transformed into faithful living toward the poor, the outcast, and the foreigner. The prophets say essentially, have the ritual, preserve it, celebrate it, but the ritual itself is no substitute for faithful living. Authentic liturgical remembrance always expresses itself in justice and compassion. In fact, continue the prophets, outer piety can become so corrupted that it can actually blind the heart to what God is most concerned about in human relationships. So watch out that you do not make the practices into idols of self-righteousness. It is into this prophetic tradition and perspective that our Lord enters and exorcises the temple in the gospel of the corrupt practices into which the ritual has slid. Solomon's naming of the danger of such a place was real. Solomon's caution was ignored. By now the temple and its officials do seek to contain God within its walls and practices of power over and exclusion and legalistic judgmentalism. The worst possible danger of misinterpretation, misunderstanding of the icon-like nature of the temple has come to pass. And the result is a robbery that has replaced the central purpose and priority of prayer. Taking on the prophetic mantle of the one who fully embodies remembrance and prayer, becoming justice and compassion, our Lord sees through the institutional processes designed to keep the temple going and names the nature, the heart nature of what is happening below the surface. Our Lord indeed sees the temple from the perspective of a window through the stones into the divine. And so it is this violation of the intent and veneration of its nature that so angers him. The epistle reading from First Peter, reflecting on the Jesus tradition, borrows building imagery, but redefines and reconceptualizes it to declare that the human person is now the temple of divine presence. We ourselves are the living stones, a spiritual house, no longer focused on a building as a place that is necessary to go to meet God, but in Christ we are indwelt in our flesh by the Spirit of God as God's own people. So we've come full circle. The icon, the object, the building are all reflecting back to us our true nature as original and divine image bearers. I remember reading Brother Lawrence's The Practice of the Presence of God first when I was in my 20s, and the confusion I felt when he said that for him, God's presence was just as real in the kitchen as in the oratory. In my young dualistic way of thinking, the kitchen was common and the church was set apart as sacred space for God's presence. Never the twain shall meet. As I have gotten older, I can at least aspire to Brother Lawrence's integration of perception of God's presence everywhere, beginning within his own heart. 
When I talk to groups about the rule of St. Benedict, the archetypal verse I always use to illustrate Benedict's whole intent in the rule is his admonition to the cellarer to regard the pots and pans as the sacred vessels of the altar. I don't know if Brother Lawrence was aware of the ecumenical councils, but St. Benedict is certainly foreshadowing and intuiting the reverence and veneration of created things and places and seeing all the world as infused with this wonder and care because all of it is sacred. Every place is a place for worship. Amen.